Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The word of the Lord. Uh, I'm going to jump right into this story. It's the story of the golden calf. Most of you, not, maybe not most of you, many of you know it, have heard it, or have some allusions to it. We're going to dig into it a little bit and see how it applies to our lives and what the challenge of it is for us and what God is calling us to through it. So the basic background is this. Israel has been wandering in the wilderness, brought out of Egypt, and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. We're, we've actually been at the foot of Mount Sinai for several chapters. So from like uh, Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, those chapters, we got the Ten Commandments. The law of God was given. God gives his covenant to his people. And then there's a whole covenant ceremony, almost like a big wedding ceremony, between God and the nation of Israel, saying, this is my covenant, my law. Will you enter in? And Israel says, yes, we will. Moses then goes back up Mount Sinai, 
And while he's up there, he gets the instructions on the tabernacle, which we looked at last week. The instructions on building this sanctuary that God would dwell in with his people always. And so uh, there's a framing that Dean Miller, the guy uh, from the other pastor who's preached here a few times from Church of the Ascension, he gave us a number of weeks back about orientation, disorientation, reorientation. That the story of the Bible often follows this theme, as one theologian put it, and our lives often do as well. And basically it was this, Israel thought they were oriented when they were in slavery in Egypt because for hundreds of years this was the life they lived in. But when God began to act, they got disoriented. The plagues came on Egypt and the land that they lived in. They were then brought out through mighty acts of God, through the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. They were delivered out of Egypt into the wilderness. And now they were completely disoriented. They had to trust God for water, for bread, for manna. They were in this stage of disorientation because God wanted to reorient them towards him. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, he is reorienting them. He gives them the law, the covenant says, this is our relationship. And while Moses is up on the mountain, he's giving Moses the instructions on the tabernacle. And God is saying, I will dwell with you. You worship me and I will be your God. You will be my people. They are being reoriented. This is a good stage. They are becoming the people of God. Anytime something good happens, you want to stay in something good. I still reflect back fondly a number of years back on that week of snowmageddon. I don't know how many of you lived around here. I love snow. And it was one of those weeks when everything got canceled. Everybody got snowed in. My kids were at that nice age where they actually enjoyed the snow, and I did too. And I was living in a neighborhood with a bunch of friends, and we just had the greatest week. And I remember thinking at the end of that week, I hope the snow doesn't ever melt. I know some of you thought the opposite, but it was, this was a fantastic week, so much fun. Snow everywhere, everything had to stop, and I didn't want it to end. But of course, eventually, you know, March, April, May, and then we have 100% humidity. <laughs> Things end. Israel, at this moment, should say, I don't want anything to end. But instead what they do is they end the reorientation themselves. God says, you're becoming my people, I'm your God, dwell with me. And they say, we're done. It doesn't look like that from their perspective. But let's read what happens. It's Exodus chapter 32, verse one, I'm gonna read. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, He'd been up there for several weeks. It was 40 days that he was up there in the end. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses is gone, and Israel says, Well, we need a god. Make us one. Aaron being the ever so willing to have peace and keep himself safe, says, okay, I got an idea. Give me all your gold. He takes all this gold. He fashions it into a golden calf. It's a, it's a bull calf. And he places it in front of the people. And he, he lays out before them. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow there's going to be a big feast, which is what you do for your gods. And we're going to offer sacrifices 
and we will, we will form our, our ceremony around this God. And in those days, in that moment, what they are doing is undoing everything that had happened chapters earlier. In Exodus chapter 24, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and the law, he gathers the elders of Israel and they enact a covenant uh, ceremony where the covenant is read and the people say, yes, we will follow this. And then Moses builds an altar and they offer sacrifices to that, uh, on that altar to God saying, we will follow you, God. We will follow these commands. You are our God. We are your people. And it says in uh, chapter 24 that the elders ate and drank. There was a feast. Just a few chapters later, they're now doing the exact same thing for this golden calf. They're throwing off everything that God had established with them. This is, sorry for the crassness, the equivalent of committing adultery on your honeymoon. Yeah, I know that ceremony we did seven days ago, but and God is up on Sinai and God is angry. The Lord says in verse seven to Moses, go down for your people have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly from what I commanded, built a golden calf, have worshiped it and sacrificed to it, saying these are our gods. This is who brought us out of Egypt. These are a stiff-necked people. And God wants to destroy them and start all over with Moses. And Moses intercedes. Moses intercedes. He implores the Lord, verse 11, why does your wrath burn against your people? You brought them out with your mighty hand. So he's retelling what God had done. He's remembering what God had done. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountain, to consume them from the face of the earth? Basically, he's saying, don't destroy them for the sake of your name, Lord. You brought them out. Let all the nations know that you are the deliverer. You are the God. Turn from your anger. And then verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to you and your offspring. They shall inherit it forever. Moses goes to God and he claims God's promises. He identifies what God has done. And he says, I know you, Lord. You are a God of mercy and glory, and goodness, and faithfulness. Moses knows who God is, and what God has done. And so he appeals to that, and the Lord relents from destroying Israel. But Moses then goes back down, and we didn't read this, but the next set of verses, if you, you know, have a Bible, read it later on, it, it's highly entertaining stuff, where Moses and Joshua go back down the mountain, and Joshua says, sounds like something's happening down there, people are singing, I don't know what it is. Moses goes and he sees all the people worshiping this golden calf and celebrating, and he takes the stone tablets with the commandments of God and he shatters them, basically symbolically saying the covenant is done. You have destroyed it, Israel. He then goes and approaches Aaron, who's been in charge of the people, and he says, Aaron, what have you done? And Aaron has this great line. He says, you know the people. You know these people. I mean, you've been around them, they're horrible. And they, they gave me all their gold and I threw it into the fire and out popped this golden calf. He literally says that. I mean, it's the equivalent of like, you know, on a playground, 
a teacher has a, a little boy run up to her with a, a bloodied face. And he points back at the other boy who he says hit him. The teacher calls the boy up to him and says, what happened? And the offending boy says, I don't know. I was just standing there and his face ran into my fist. I don't know what happened. You should ask him. What Aaron does in trying to displace blame, the people, I don't know, it's not my fault. It's not just childish. It's actually a reenacting of the fall. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. The Lord God enters the garden and says, where are you? Why are you hiding? What have you done? And what does Adam say? Well, Lord, I sinned against you and against heaven. I ate of the fruit that you said not to eat. I didn't trust you, and I'm sorry. And no, Adam says, the woman, that woman who you gave to me, it's not my fault, it's her fault. And the Lord says to Eve, what happened? And she says, the serpent, that thing, it's that thing's fault. The displacing of blame, the casting of, it's somebody else's fault. Unwilling to say, I have failed. I have sinned because we don't understand. Aaron doesn't understand. We don't understand. Adam and Eve didn't understand who God is, what he really desires of us. What has Israel done in this moment? They have broken the commands of God, right? The first commandment is you shall have no other gods. The second commandment is you shall not make an idol And that's really what they've done. They've really done the second commandment because there's wording in there that says they're trying to identify this golden calf with Yahweh, the God who brought them out of Israel. This is just the image of Yahweh, okay? So they're still saying Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is just in the form of this golden calf. Now what they're doing in that is taking on the religion and gods of all of their neighbors. They've just been brought out of Egypt. Egypt had a pantheon of gods, and their pantheon of gods was represented physically in art and in statues that had human bodies and animal heads, a bird, an alligator, a fish. And on top of that, they were heading, Israel was heading to to the land of Canaan, where one of the most common representations of the deity was a bull calf. Fertility, strength, all the things that they wanted. So what Israel does in making this golden calf is say, yeah, we believe in Yahweh, but we want Yahweh to look like everyone expects. We want a religion that matches the cultural land in which we live. There was a way to do religion in Egypt. There was a way to do religion in the ancient Near East. The God of the Bible didn't match that. So Israel says, let's do it another way. Instead of an invisible God who just commands and calls us and leads us with his presence, we want a physical thing. And let's make it like the others. What they're doing in this is not just breaking the second commandment. They are actually redefining who Yahweh is. They're redefining Yahweh according to the cultural norms that they were used to. 
their expectations of what a God should look like. In other words, what they're doing in this moment of worshiping this golden calf is defining God on their own terms. They're saying this is what we want God to be. And by doing so, it's no longer Yahweh. It's an altogether other God that they have just made up. And so they are rejecting God's covenant, his leading them out, his promises, his love, his mercy, his deliverance of them, all that he'd done in taking them from slavery to freedom and his promise to be with them and to make them his people, all of the provision that he'd he'd given them, the way that he had judged their enemies, all of that is being thrown out. They're rejecting that, saying, we don't want that God, we want to make our own. Well, we want that God, but we also want to have some say in what that God is like. They're redefining who God is and therefore rejecting God by making God on their own terms. God has led them from orientation to disorientation in the wilderness to the process of reorienting them at the foot of Mount Sinai and in that very moment when he is shaping them to be his people, they choose disorientation again. They choose to go their own way. We have a similar problem in that like Israel, we define God on our own terms. We talk about it here a lot that idolatry is a part of what we do as well. It doesn't look the same. We don't fashion golden calves. I don't think any of you do. But we don't fashion golden calves. But it's, we all have something that is central to our life. Something we worship, sacrifice for, live for, be it our career or our kids' happiness or financial security or being liked, there's always something that we're turning to to give us meaning, purpose, salvation. But idolatry is also whenever we choose to define God on our own terms, saying, this is the God I believe in. And in our modern American world, look, we live assuming that God is what we want and expect from a God. And we cut out the parts we don't like. Many people I've found accept parts of Christianity so long as it makes makes me feel better, right? But I'm gonna dismiss the ones that don't make me feel better or that aren't cool and acceptable anymore today. We assume God, the God that we believe in, must match our culture and our social circles. And that's actually probably a bigger one. The people that we run around with help define what we think God should be like. Israel's cultural milieu was Egypt and then that ancient Near East. Ours is America and whatever sub-circles you run in. And that will define what's important, what matters, what you value, what God must be like. But is that really God? Just because you call it God, does it make it the God, the one true God? In the sixth grade, Joshua Mandel used those cubbies that every classroom has. Well, at least the classrooms that I was in had these cubbies. You you had a desk, but then you also had another place to store things. 
So Joshua used to get um, red grapes for lunch every day, and he didn't love red grapes, but he didn't want to tell his mom. She just made the lunch. He would eat a couple of the grapes, but he had this bright idea, as all sixth grade boys do. Those red grapes can become wine. So he began to store in a Ziploc, in his cubby, red grapes. He would mash them, because he knew that was how you make wine, and he kept them in there for six weeks, eight weeks, and then proceeded to try to drink it and invite anyone else who would like to. Now, because you have red grapes and you mash it and it sits around for a few weeks, have you made wine? If you wanted to call it wine, is it wine or just rotten grapes? Just because you call it something doesn't make it so. A meatless burger (laughs) is not a burger. Now look, I'm all for, you know, plant-based diets and eating vegetarian, but a burger has meat in it. That is what a burger is, right? So I don't know if the burger part of a meatless burger is actually just the shape, but actually the shape is, is like, actually like a hockey puck or a disc. That's what the shape is, right? So you, you know, meatless burger should actually be like a vegetarian puck, or a meatless, uh, like a a bean disc, then it would be okay. Burgers should be reserved for that which came from the cow. Just because you call it a burger doesn't make it a burger. It's missing the part that makes it such. Calling your view of God, God, does not make it such. You believe in something, but it may not be the God. This is hard for us because we, even as Christians, people who self-proclaim as Christians, are so lightly discipled. That means we go to church irregularly or been in a small group, maybe read a parts of the Bible, but it hasn't deeply shaped our worldview We haven't bound our our authority to it. We haven't been shaped by it. We dabble in Christianity. But we have instead a lifetime, a lifetime of cultural discipleship and cultural training. Every day, all day, I am being shaped into the image of my culture. I I am. Look, I I didn't go to college and get a degree in materialism, but I'm a materialist. I find myself dreaming in Amazon Prime. Like, literally, I'll be sitting there in the middle of the day, it's daydreaming, like, I bet I could get that on Amazon. Sure enough, there it is. I should get it. You do it too. You dream in shopping. We don't have to be trained in that. You didn't read a book to do that. It just is. We are discipled by our culture far more than by Christianity. And so often our Christianity reflects our cultural assumptions. We will put politics above God and define our God on the basis of the politics we've already chosen. Or we will say God, the God I believe in, must agree with what I already think is true. We want to follow God, but give up nothing, lose nothing. 
Jesus, Jesus said, I have come that you might be happy. I have come so that everyone will like you. Follow me and your life will be easy. No, he didn't. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will end up losing it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find life. It's hard to follow Jesus on his terms. It's why many popular Christians in various circles of music and uh, writing and blogs and pastoring that are in the kind of more famous Christian circles find it harder and harder to keep faith. Many have actually walked away recently. Abandoning historic Christian teaching on who God is and how God calls us to live. Or walking away from Christian faith altogether because it's just too hard. Or they're confused. Israel made a golden calf. They called it Yahweh. It was not Yahweh. The culturally acceptable gods that we formulate inside of our heads are probably not God either. It is God made in our image, not the other way around. So what's the solution? It's knowing the real God. The solution is knowing the real God. The God of the Bible, the God of Christianity says, You can know God because God is a self-revealing God. The Christian God self-reveals. And therefore, he says, I want you to know me. I will make it possible for you to know me, but you must know me on my terms, not on yours. God defines himself, not the other way around. The scriptures tell us that we can know God through creation and conscience. By looking around at the creation, we can see that there's something more. And in the heart of hearts, There's no person that is without excuse because within us we know there's something, something more, something longer, something more than this 70 years, 40 years, 12 years, 80 years. There's purpose, meaning, there's something there. Our conscience wrestles. We look out and it's God revealing himself in the beauty of creation, in the majesty, in the minutia, and in our hearts and minds. Christianity makes the claim that God has fully revealed himself in scripture, Genesis to Revelation. You want to know God, you go there. And we understand God through scripture as the church has understood it through centuries. Not, it, it is partly me and the Bible and the, and the Holy Spirit inside of me, but it's me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit with all of you. And not just with all of you, but with other churches around the world, the world, and other churches through history. As we have understood that God is revealed, and who he is and what he calls us to. And ultimately, all of that points to how God fully, completely revealed himself in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You and I are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image. He is the one that fully represents God. You want to know who God is and what he's like? Look at Jesus. And the great contrast is there. Israel fashions a golden calf and says, This is the image of our God. And God the Father looks down on his son, says, 
This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He is the image of the invisible God. Don't look at what the culture expects. Look at Christ as understood through scripture, as read through the church, as affirmed in creation and conscience. You can know this God. But we don't. Like Israel, we naturally reject God and redefine God on our own terms. It's not just Israel's the bad people here. We actually are no different than Israel. That's what I've been trying to get us to see here. One of the readings that we had in our Exodus devotional this week was Psalm 53. And in Psalm 53, we read that the Lord looks around to see if there are any who seek God. And the answer in Psalm 53 is no, not one. By nature, no one naturally pleases God, seeks God, follows God. By nature, we do not. Churches always talk about sin, right? And many of us think of sin as like the breaking the Ten Commandments, like if if you steal or lie or commit adultery or murder. Those things are true, but underneath them is what we've been talking about today. Sin is seeking to be your own Savior and Lord and defining God on your own terms. Because it's basically a rejection of God. And we all do it day in and day out. I want to define God, therefore I will be my own Savior and Lord. God is loving and merciful, but he is also just. And he basically says, look, if you want to reject me, that's fine. You can walk away from me, and I'll let you go. And you'll walk away forever. And be apart from me forever. C.S. Lewis summed it up in this quote that I've used here before when he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. If you don't want God, he will let you go. We all sin and fall short. But the good news of the gospel is that there is atonement for our sins. It has been taken care of. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses goes back up to the mountain and he appeals to God. He says, this people has sinned a great sin They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sins, Lord, please do. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses, amazingly, is not looking at saving himself. Because he knows who God is and he loves God, he therefore loves God's people, he says, take my life. May I be pushed away. Save this people. But Moses could not atone for Israel's sin The gospel tells us that Jesus can. God became human to pay for, atone for our sin, our rejection of God. And on the cross, God's justice and mercy meet. First John says, this is God's love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die in our place for our sins. All of our doubts all of our idolatry, our failure, every sin we've ever committed, all of our brokenness, 
has been paid for on the cross. That's the Christian God. Yes, he says, follow me. Here's the way. I will define who I am. But he says, you're gonna fail and I love you. Come to me, to the cross, to Jesus. Everything you've ever done has been paid for. You can't be too sinful, too far gone. God's love and mercy has already taken care of it. I want us to remember, this is how I want to close. I want to close in thinking of this idea of remembrance. Remembrance is a common theme in Exodus, and it's a common theme throughout the Old Testament. Hebrew remembrance, the the remembrance in Hebrew thought, is not just recalling past events, like facts in a history book or history lesson. You know, the 75th anniversary of D-Day just happened a few months ago, and my guess is that if your average 20-year-old man in here watched something from the D-Day, you know, kind of reenactments and all these sorts of things, they'd say, wow, that was great, that was powerful, that was amazing. But it would have very little impact on their lives. It's not pushing them forward saying, would I do the same thing? Could I step into this? This is calling me to sacrifice in the same sort of ways. It's just too distant from the world in which we live. So remembrance in the Hebrew way of thinking is not just remembering something that happened or reenacting it or calling it to mind. It's reflecting on the past, but with present and ongoing impact. Your remembrances shape who you are and how you think about the future. In Hebrew thinking, what you remember matters because what you remember can lead you to grudges being carried out, like in the Balkans or Rwanda of the 90s, or they can lead you to a calling. It's why African Americans in the black church remember again and again Selma and the bus boycotts of Montgomery and Martin Luther King Jr. And they go back to those stories again and again because it's not just remembering and forgetting, it's remembering to shape us, to call us into something in the future so that it doesn't happen again, to lead us to be the people that we are made to be. It's remembrance that calls us forward and shapes us. Israel failed to remember who God was and what he had done. Moses does not. He remembers who God is. You have saved us. Your name is great. You made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we want to live out of that. But remembering God and what he has done is hard for us. We live in an instant culture, a happy now culture, and like Israel, we want God to fit that. He calls us to remember Remember, daily thanksgiving, a devotional life that digs into God's word and says, who is he and what has he done for us? And that's what we do at communion each week. It is a remembrance, but it's not just a recalling something that happened in the past. It's a remembrance with present impact. This is how God has saved us, and it's transforming us even today. So when we finish our service with communion, I want to invite you to pray and say, God, recall to my mind who you are and what you have done. Who is this God? What has he done for us? What is he calling me to? And how do I need to respond to him this day? Let's pray. God, this is not easy stuff. Golden calves sound funny, but they're not. 
and we follow in the same way. It's so easy for us to fashion you in our image. Convict us, Lord, but also encourage us. Lead us to give up our false gods, to see you for who you are, and to be transformed because of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.